you open your Bibles to the book of Job? We're going to dive right in because we've got some things we want you to look at and, uh, and uh, watch today. Um, boy, as you turn to Job, we're actually going to look at the resurrection from the book of Job, from the Old Testament. And that might be surprising to you, but it, it, you're going to see very clearly that it's there. Have you been watching the news for the last couple of weeks? Quite a few hope-draining tragedies in the news recently. It's hard to believe. Uh, back on March 8th, an entire Boeing 777 passenger plane disappeared off the face of the earth. Now, there was only a handful of Americans on that plane, and so emotionally that may not ring uh, very deeply with us, but for scores of, fa- of families on the other side of the world, life was drained of all hope as they process this reality that loved ones are gone, missing, and they probably will never know exactly what what happened or where their bodies are. you you got to think through that and realize just how devastating that can be. And then in South Korea, did you read about this? A river ferry capsized in the lives of over 300 high school students, and more than a dozen teachers were lost in what appeared to be human error. Think about those parents. Think about those families. You know, school event, off, and suddenly your child doesn't come home. The LA Times ran this headline, South Korea Ferry Disaster, Hope Exhausted in Search for Survivors. Then, of course, closer to home, it's hard to believe, just one week ago today, on the day before the Jewish Passover began, a grandpa and a grandson were brutally gunned down in cold blood as they arrived at the Jewish Community Center in Overland Park. If you've never been there, it's a terrific place. Our family's gone there several times to see Holocaust movies and to actually hear Holocaust survivors in the Kansas City area. And then this elderly man, who's an anti-Semitic gunman, turned his hatred on another dear lady coming out of the village Shalom Retirement Community Center. The motive was hatred for Jews. Ironically, all three victims were not Jewish. Um, One was a doctor who did everything he could do to help his patients. The doctor's grandson was a teen auditioning for a singing competition here in Kansas City that could have won him a scholarship. And the therapist who was killed, the lady who worked with visually impaired children. Will Corcoran was the son of the man who died and the uncle of the boy. And if you uh, heard his press conference, here's what he said. That idiot absolutely knocked a family to its knees for no reason. Sometimes life can seem utterly hopeless, and we begin to sink into a pit of despair. We sink because life stinks. And that's what it is sometimes. That's why I call it the ash heap of despair. In Bible times, the ash heap was the garbage dump that was located outside of the community. It was that place that was separated. It was isolated. It was where things that were broken, things that were unwanted, things that were useless were thrown. And it was a place where people who were broken, people who were considered useless, people who were considered cursed by God, were forced to live in shame and separation. It was a place where all hope was lost. In other words, the ash sheep represents life when it stinks, life when it seems God has abandoned you in your suffering and all hope is lost. Life seems hopeless when you're sitting on the ash heap of despair. 
And eventually, all of us are going to find ourselves that. For some of us, we, find, we have found ourselves that in this past year. For some of us, we're still there. For some of us, we fear it may be ahead. Well, what is the ash heap that you fear the most? As we've studied the book of Job in the last few uh, months, we've seen that it could be a financial one, the loss of wealth and all your material possessions. It could be a physical ash heap, the loss of physical, emotional, mental, physical, or social pain. It could be a marital one, the loss of the support of a treasured family member, or it could be a relational relational one, the loss of sympathy of your most trusted friend. So what is it that, that you fear the most? And whatever it is, if it happens, or if you're in it right now, life seems hopeless. Just ask a man called Job. Because Job knows what it is to sit on the ash heap of despair. Now, we've been studying the book of Job for the past several months, but I want to give you a a quick overview that kind of led him to where he is sitting literally in the garbage dump on the outside of town. You see, he lived over 4,000 years ago during the time of Abraham, and he lived in a region just east of ancient Israel. He was the richest man in the entire region with a total of 10 kids. Can you imagine? Uh, Seven sons and three daughters, and more servants, more livestock, and more farmland than anyone in the region. But the greatest wealth that Job possessed was blameless integrity. He feared God, and he lived a blameless life before his family, before his God, before his community. Now, blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means that he sinned less because he had faith in God. He knew that his sins were covered by blood sacrifice, that one day there would be a Redeemer. And therefore, because he knew he was forgiven, he was motivated to live a blameless life. And he did it better than anyone in the, well, we're going to see anyone on the entire planet. He was healthy, wealthy, and wise. He was happy and holy. He was filled with hope until one day when the devil, the adversary of God, the adversary of God's people, came to God to accuse God's people of not living for God here on this earth. But before Satan could accuse anyone, God stopped him in his tracks and said, Have you considered my servant Job? He's the most godly man on the planet, and he lives in blameless integrity before me. Well, the adversary knew Job very well because he had tried to destroy him many times. But God had put a hedge of protection around him so that Satan could not attack him. He could not destroy him. But being an accuser by nature, the devil accused Job of living for God for what he could get from God. He said, look, the reason this man loves you so much and lives for you and is so godly is because you protect him. If you would just take all that he owns away from him, he would curse you to your face. Well, God is a powerful God, and he went to war with his adversary, the devil. And he went to war to prove that Job's integrity was truly blameless. It was not based on what he got from God, but what 
but who God really was. And God went to war with his adversary to prove that God was worth living for, not because of what he does for us, but because of who he is in both adversity and prosperity. And so he said to the adversary, you may do anything you want to him. You may take all that he has, only do not touch him. Well, when the devil is given room to roam, he, he does that, and, and boom, in one day, Job, probably in less than an hour, lost everything that he owned, including his ten adult children. Can you imagine that? Losing it all in one day, in less than an hour? Some of you have gotten that phone call that just changes everything. Now imagine four phone calls back to back in which you have lost it all. And yet, here's what Job said. Job rose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And here's what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Far from cursing God, he blessed God. And through all this, Job did not sin nor blame God. Well, the adversary doesn't give up easily, so he went back to God and he said, Look, I know he didn't curse you to his face like I said he would, but that's because you didn't touch him. You didn't touch him personally. A man will sacrifice everything, even his kids, as long as you don't touch him. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life, Satan said. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to his flesh, to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power only you cannot take his life. The adversary didn't waste any time attacking Job's health. In Job 2.7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. You see, when the devil took his health, that drove him out to the ash heap. That drove him to the ash heap of despair where he was in shame, in sickness, having lost it all. But once again, Job refuses to curse God, even when his own wife gives up on him. Can you imagine that? Listen to this. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity here on the ash heap? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as a foolish woman speaks. Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all, those, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Well, just when it seemed like it couldn't get any worse, Job's three best friends show up. They're there to comfort him. But when they see him, they don't even recognize him. He is so sick. He seemingly is so cursed by God. He's, he's suffering so much and he's separated. And, he's, and he just seems like such a hopeless case. The comforters decide, you're not suffering because you're innocent. You're suffering because you're guilty. You must have sin in your life. And so these three guys who were supposed to be comforting him begin to accuse him. Now, can you imagine where Job is at? And now the th your three best friends in the world come, and you think, finally, a little relief. Even my wife's not standing by me, but these three guys will. And instead of doing that, they curse you. And they tell you that you're to blame for what you're suffering. Well... When Job needed comforting most, he didn't get it. And sometimes you won't either when you need it most. And yet, 
in this very situation, hope rises from the ashes. And as we this debate unfolds, as these three friends try to accuse and attack and convince Job, you're suffering because there's some sin in your life. And, and Job's like, no, no, it's not that. And yet God is silent. And why am I here? And all hope is lost. And God, why would you put me in this situation? Why have I lost what I thought I so much needed? And why are you absent and not really answering my prayers when I need you the most? And yet hope rises. Well, I want you to show you a video today because Job lived over 4,000 years ago, but there's modern-day Job's all around us. And a couple weeks ago, we had Jim and Sharon Smith, and some of you know their story of their son, Zach, who I really see as a modern-day Job, and and, uh, I want you to see his story. Hi, my name is Zach Smith, and I am 33 years old. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Mandy, for 11 years. We have three children, Lizzie, Jake, and Luke. And this is my story. I met Jesus when I was five years old. I grew up as a son of missionary parents in Ecuador, where I lived for 15 years. I went to college in Arizona, where I met my wife. For the next 10 years, we traveled around while I worked in the information technology field. We served in our local church, and I attended seminary. I often thought about working in full-time ministry, but no opportunities seemed right. I was told about a job here at New Spring Church helping with information technology. It was perfect, an IT job at an amazing church. I took the job and started working in October of 2008. For several months, life was very good and we were very happy. In May of 2009, at age 32, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Immediately I had surgery to remove a foot and a half of my large intestine and a lemon-sized tumor. I was told that cancer had spread to my spleen and to my liver. Chemotherapy was on the horizon. This was all a very sudden shock to me. I had always been very healthy and I found myself very confused. Why did I have cancer? Had I done something wrong to cause it? Was this a result of many years of sinful living in my past? I was working at a church and serving God. Where did I go wrong? But thankfully the confusion quickly turned to hope. I knew that God had a plan for my life. I did not understand why I had cancer, but I knew that God was in charge. For three months I underwent a horrible chemo regimen. Afterwards I had a scan done and the results were great. There was no cancer found in my body. We celebrated God's healing and God's faithfulness. And the next few weeks of my life were some of the best as I celebrated being cancer-free. But another scan one month later showed that the cancer had reappeared, this time in my abdominal cavity. I was devastated. Why was it back? Everything was just starting to make sense, but the reoccurrence of cancer caused even greater confusion. I resumed chemotherapy and did more tests. The cancer is now growing and getting worse. Unfortunately, the chemo drugs are no longer effective in my abdomen, and surgery is not an option due to the degraded state of my liver. Medically speaking, there is nothing more for me, and medically speaking, I probably will not live to 2011. The Bible says in Matthew 7:11 that God gives good things to those who ask. God cannot give me a bad gift, and it is through that lens that I can say that cancer is the best thing that has ever happened to me. 
I am a better husband and a better dad, a better boss and a better employee, a better friend and a better follower of Jesus. And through cancer, God has shown me some amazing things about himself. Those are indeed great gifts. I still have questions about cancer, why it went away and why it came back. I do not understand, but I know that God is in charge. I am praying for God to heal me. That is my desire. I want to walk my daughter Lizzie down the aisle. I want to watch my sons, Jake and Luke, become men. I want to grow old with Mandy. And I want to live my life with my friends here at work. But I may not be able to work for very much longer. And I may have just celebrated my last Christmas with my family. I do know. If God chooses to heal me, then God is God and God is good. If God chooses not to heal me and allows me to die, God is still God and God is still good. To God be the glory. The story of Job that I just told you, and yet it's kind of a reverse Job. Job lived and lost everything, and in this case, Zach died and left an entire family and left uh, godly parents and left uh, a whole. And I wanted to share that because today at Zach's church, they are celebrating and talking about his wife and his kids are testifying to the goodness of God four years later. And so, how fitting that thousands of people have heard that. Did you hear the hope that rose in that story? And, and remember I quoted Will Corporon, the son of the dad who was brutally shot and uncle of the boy? Well, later, Will said that their family is turning to their faith and to each other. And here's a quote that I want you to hear from, from just this week. It's ap- it absolutely provides comfort. That is their faith. Evil is evil and no one in my family believes that God is doing this to punish us or cause us harm, he said. You know evil people do evil things and what we will rely on is our faith to get us through this. Knowing full well it's only by the grace of God that we're going to be able to pull together and come to grips with what has happened. How does such hope rise from such despair. Are these people, Will and his family, Zach and his family, are they just different from you and I? Or or can we have hope rise from the ashes of despair? Well, the answer is going to be found, ironically, in the book of Job in four key passages. Four key passages that are progressively, progressively revealed through Job's own testimony as he sits on the ash heap. In other words, as we move through these four passages, remember, Job is speaking them on his own ash heap of despair. And even on the ash heap of despair, the longer it went, the more his hope grew. Did you hear that? See, that's what true believers do. They persevere. 
on the ash heap of despair and their hope rises from the ashes. So let's look and see at these passages. Now, I have them laid out for you because this is just how I studied it this week. I I looked at these passages and I'm like, what is this man saying? This, This Old Testament believer who lived before Jesus ever died, lived, died, and rose again. What is he saying? And so I just I just broke it down. Here's what he is saying in each of these things. So so it's laid out for you there. The 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 Hebrew is in poetry. They're difficult. So I I've used different versions. They're there in your notes because some of the some of the passages are hard to to really figure out what is being said. I've done my homework. I've done my work. I think these are the most accurate understandings of what God has for us in His Word. So let's take a look at it. Listen to this. Number one, hope rises when you have a mediator who stands between you and God. When you have a mediator that stands between you and God on, and when you're on the ash heap of despair, that's when hope rises. Turn in your Bibles and look there in your notes as well. And you can compare Job 9. 2 through 35. Now, in our study in the past few weeks, we, we looked at this passage, but I want you to look at it again. Notice Job 9, 32 through 35. I'll read it from the NIV. He is not referring to God. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. God, why are you doing this? I just can't. He's not a human like I am. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job knows in his suffering he needs a mediator. You heard it from Zach. You've heard it in your own heart. When we suffer, we want a sit down with God and we want answers. And yet God is up there and and we're down here. And listen, in our sin, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the gap between us and God is even greater. Here is God in heaven. Think about who we're talking about. He's holy. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's high and lifted up. And we're down here. And we're broken. We're weak. We're fallen. We're sinners. And we're imperfect. There's a huge gap between us. And what we need in our suffering and our sin, we need a mediator, a go-between. And Job realizes this. I like how the NIV says it. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. Listen, whatever else you get this morning, get this on this Resurrection Sunday. We need someone who can reach as far up as God is and reach down as far as we are and bring us together. The mediator that we need, according to these verses, according to Job's own witness, the mediator we need has at least five characteristics. Let's look at them quickly. A mediator that is both divine and human. Why? Because look at what Job says. He's not a man as I am. Job, throughout this book, and I'm seeing a pattern as we study it, he's emphasizing two major characteristics that separate God from us. And the two characteristics are found in chapter 9 and chapter 12, and here they are. God is wiser than us, and God is stronger than us. You know what that means? 
That means we can't reason our way to God this morning. That means we can't figure Him out on our own. That means God is stronger than us, which means we can't work our way to Him. He's stronger, higher than us. And it means we can't force Him to come down and do what we want. You ever wanted that? See, people often try to reason their way to God or to reason God out of existence or out of their lives. But trying to reason God away from you or reason God to understand Him is like hitting your head against a brick wall. You ever done that? You know what happens when you hit your head against a brick wall? Your head hurts, and the wall is what? It's still there. It's not hurting. No, it's not. And it's not moving, okay? That's what reasoning your way to God is like. And then when we try to work our way to God or force God to do what we want or to come down here so that we could give Him a talking to and a lesson on how to lead the universe... That's like using a ladder that's always too short. You ever had a, a you ever had to reach something? You got a ladder too short. Now, personally, some of us are just vertically challenged. We're always too short. Okay, I was trying to change a light the, uh, last night, and and I didn't want to stand on the bed, but I was going to have to because I just couldn't reach it. Well, there's no ladder high enough. It's like evil can evil trying to jump the Grand Canyon. It ain't going to happen. You're going to need a parachute. We need a mediator that's both divine and human that can actually is wise enough to understand God and explain Him to us and strong enough to come down and bring God down to us. Secondly, Job realizes we need a mediator that can bring people and God together. I, in the uh, verse 33, if you look at verse 33 in the New American Standard, it says, who may lay his hand upon both of us. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. In the NIV, it paraphrases it and just kind of tells us what that means. It says, someone to bring us together. Isn't this a beautiful picture of reaching up and reaching down and then bringing us together and putting your hand, putting your hand as a mediator on two people. We're basically saying, you ever, as a parent, you ever, if more than one, uh, yeah, Kirk immediately, could, would you stand up and give the testimony? What you do as a parent and a mediator when two kids are at a crossroads, you grab them by the scruff of the neck, you bring them together and say, we're going to work this out. That's what Job says I need. And that's what we need. Number three, a mediator who is able to reconcile us with God. It's not enough to be brought together. We're brought together in order to shake hands, make up, and work this out. Notice what he says in the uh, New American Standard. It says, there's no umpire between us. Now, that sounds weird to us, but not if you're a baseball fan. Any baseball fans here? Okay. Yeah, an umpire makes a decision between two people, and they both have to live with it. In the NIV, it says, if there was someone to mediate, mediate between us, to bring us and reconcile us to God. Now, stop for a moment. This is God and this is us. God's way up there. We're way down here. Now, what's going on in that? We need a mediator who can satisfy God's need for justice and our need for mercy. See, there's no reconciliation unless God gets His justice and we get our mercy. And we're, we're, some, most of us here are familiar with that concept, aren't we? God's just, we need mercy. But there's another part of all of us sitting here, and that is, we want mercy for us, but what do we want for others? Justice. And that's not always wrong. You think Will and his family would like some justice this Sunday? 
Yes, see, we have a cry for justice. Now, typically, we want mercy for us and justice for the other guy. But we need both. There, all around this world, this morning, there's a cry for two things. There's a cry for justice. God, that's wrong, and you need to make it right. And there's a cry for mercy. I'm wrong, and I need to be made right. And we need a mediator that can reconcile both those things. Amen? And fourthly, we need a mediator that will put an end to our fear of God's judgment. Because you can say what you want about God, come down here so I can straighten you out. But if He would, and at the end of this book He's going to, you know what would happen to us? May I say it? You know, pardon me, but we would wet ourselves. In fact, it would be more tragic than that. We would die. And Job says, I've got to interact with you, but I know that you are so great and I am so small that coming together, I fear I would die. And that's a proper fear. One day we're all, we're all going to meet God face to face like that. And we should all have that kind of fear. And unless there is one to stand between us and this God that we have an appointment with in the future, we too will die. So we need a mediator to put an end to our fear of God's judgment. He says, oh, that someone would remove his rod from me so that his terror would not frighten me anymore. And then fifthly, The fifth characteristic that Job sees on the ash heap of his despair is a mediator that would make it possible for us to come before God with bold confidence. Look at the last part of this verse. Then I would speak up without fear, but as it stands now, I cannot. The Holman Christian Standard says it this way, Then I would speak and not fear him, but that's not the case. I'm on my own. I'm on my own. You see, what Job wants to do is this holy, fearful God. He wants to enter his presence with confidence, with boldness, with the ability to share his heart, to cry out for justice, to cry out for mercy, and to receive those things without he himself dying in the process. See, Job knew what he needed in his despair. And this is the kind of mediator we all need this morning, not only in our suffering, but for some of us who are still in our sins, we need this mediator this morning. And here's where hope rises from the ashes. When we realize that such a mediator really does exist this morning in the person of Jesus. This is the point where you smile and you say, amen. Listen to 1 Timothy 2.3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How can they be powerfully saved? How can they understand God's wisdom? For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. What Job longed for 4,000 years ago happened 2,000 years ago at just the right time. And that's why we're here this morning. And in Hebrews 4.14 The mediator is called a high priest because a priest was a mediator. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Don't freak out. Don't give up. Don't quit. Hold on. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. You see, he's way up there, and yet he's been way down here. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Job was blameless. Jesus was sinless. Therefore, here's the therefore. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Hope rises in your despair when you understand that there is a mediator who stands between us and God. Well, Job needed more than a mediator. He needed an intercessor. And that's the second thing that we see in the book of Job. Hope rises even on the ash heap of despair when you have an intercessor who pleads with God for you like a friend. When you have an intercessor who pleads with God for you like a friend. Turn your Bibles to Job 16 and compare that with the, the passage you have there in your, in your notes. Job 16, 18 through 21. Listen to this. Job's on an ash heap. He's in despair. Listen to his first words. Verse 18. O earth, do not cover my blood. Let there be a secret place for my cry. What he's saying is, look... I think I'm about to die. And when I die, my cry for hope is going to be squelched. But God, somehow, let my cry keep going out to you even after I die. Now, notice what he says. It's not all despair. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God, and he contends with God on behalf of man as a man pleads for his friend. It's a New English translation. Suffering sometimes leads to death, and Job's afraid he's going to die before he can prove his blamelessness before God. Hey, it's not a good thing to die before you know God has declared you blameless. If you were to die this morning, do you know for sure that God would declare you right with Him and welcome you into His presence? And if you are sure of that this morning, may I ask you, what's your confidence based on? Because ultimately God is the judge. You see, Job knew God as Savior and Lord. But just think if you were here this morning without God as Savior and Lord, the wages of sin of death, and after this comes the judgment. What Job needed in his suffering and what we need if we are still in our sins is an intercessor who pleads with God for us like a friend. Well, based on these verses that we have there before us, Job knew that that intercessor, intercessor that he needed and that we need had five characteristics. Let's look at them. First of all, an intercessor who will plead our case before God. That's what an intercessor does. He pleads our case before a judge. Intercessor means to plead with someone in authority on behalf of someone else, especially someone being punished for someone. i got to go before the judge. I know I'm guilty. I need somebody to uh, plead mercy of the court. Notice what it says. 
my intercessor will contend with God on my behalf. Secondly, an intercessor, we need, hope rises when we have an intercessor who is a witness that testifies on our behalf before the judge. Look at verse 19. Even now my witness is in heaven. Job's saying, what I need is, I need someone, I, I need some witness. Can I hear a witness? Can I have a witness? Could someone, yes, I, I see that hand back there. Can I have a witness? Could someone just stand up for me and back me up on this? Why was that so important for him? Were his friends doing that? And God, was he doing that? Well, he was, but Job didn't know it. He needed an intercessor. Thirdly, hope rises when you have an intercessor who is a defender that speaks up for us when others accuse us. He says, my witness is in heaven to testify for me, but he's my advocate, my defender, my defense attorney to speak in support of me when others accuse me. You see, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm going to witness on his behalf. He is you know, he, 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 he's honestly who he is. And what he says is true. It's another thing when people attack you, you need somebody to defend you. You need a defense attorney. And boy, did I learn this the hard way. Small lesson or a small court appearance over a small infraction, but a big lesson. I had a parking, uh, we were down, I don't forget what I was down there. I was down at the, the uh, what's the, Bartle Hall. And there was premium parking because there was an event that I was going to. And, and there was a parking space there. And, and I, knew, I knew I was stretching it a little bit, but, but there was pl- three-fourths of my car was where it's supposed to be. Just a fourth of it wasn't because it was the last spot. I mean, it was the last spot. It made perfect sense until I got the ticket. And I said, this, this is just not right. I'm going to fight this. I mean, when I, when, I, when I speed and I get tickets, I pay them. Now, I try to get out of them, but I've never done it. I've, I've lifted my pant leg, nothing happens. And uh, so I pay my tickets. But in this case, this was wrong. So I decided, I'm going to go to court. I'm going to fight this. Well, let me tell you, when you fight minor infractions, they're not happy with you when you do that. And so when I took win because I was like, this is a little scary, intimidating. So I go to fight this parking ticket, and I had it all. I mean, I, I knew, I, I wasn't trying to twit. I just, I knew what I was going to say. And, and I got up there, and the lady judge was there, and and the lady, I guess, prosecutor, because she was against me, she was there, and uh, I had, and I, yeah, man, it was intense. It was, any of you ever, uh, that want to admit it, you ever been to court? I'm telling you what, you ought to go to court. Because someday we're going to be in a heavenly court. It's an intimidating experience. And so I gave my explanation, and somehow the judge who was sitting above me and, and the prosecutor who was against me was not listening, was not understanding what I was saying. My dear wife did, who couldn't intercede for me, who couldn't mediate for me. And basically, as I explained myself, they heard me say the opposite of what I was saying. And they lost patience. And finally, the judge was done. Leave. Pay. Go. And I left. And I'm like, what just happened? And Gwen goes, I know, I know, I saw, I saw, I knew what you were saying. You were saying it right. And they didn't hear it. And, 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 and I, I learned a lesson. I will never, I will never go to court without a defender and an advocate. Because the fact of the matter was, as 
imperfect as those people were. They were high and they were powerful. And I just wasn't wise enough to be able to explain what I needed to explain. Parking ticket, no big deal. But what if it's your eternity? What if it's your soul? Job knows in this book, he wants to talk with God, but he's like, I'm going to be overwhelmed by his wisdom, by his power, and I need a defender. I need an advocate. Number four, I just don't need a lawyer. I need a friend. An intercessor who is a friend that stands with us when others are against us. My intercessor is my friend. You ought to underline that in your Bible. You ought to take that and you ought to take it to the bank for the rest of your life that there is an intercessor who is your friend. How beautiful that is. I didn't just pay him to do it, to defend me. He's defending me because he loves me, because he knows me. Because he will stand with me when everybody else is against me. And then finally, he says, the intercessor we need so our hope will rise is one who is so divine that he can intercede for us with God like we do here on earth. You see, ultimately Job knows, I basically need God to intercede for me with who? With God. Do you see what Job? Job understands the dilemma. What I need, only God can provide. The problem is, I think God's against me. Do I need God to intercede for me with God? And the commentators say, that can't be what Job's thinking. That doesn't make sense. And I'm like, exactly. His ways are higher than our ways. What we need is God, and yet God is the one we must do business with. Job knew he needed an intercessor, someone in heaven who had access to God and who had God's ear, someone who was as divine as God but was also his defender before God. Hope rises from the ashes when we realize that such an intercessor really does exist in the person of Jesus. Listen to Romans 8. We've been in Romans 8. Listen to Romans 8.33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus? Is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand, who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us then from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Why? Because Christ intercedes. My hope rises. And listen to Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. Listen, Jesus rose from the grave over 2,000 years ago. Today is Easter, and he's as alive today as he was then, and he's interceding for each of his children against who any who would accuse, whether it's devil or man or family or friend. In fact, we've seen in Romans 8 that we not only have an intercessor at the side of God, we have an intercessor inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. But Job's not done. Hope is still rising in his heart. And we move along in the book of Job and we see that hope rises when you have a guarantor who will pay your debt. A guarantor who will pay your debt. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's a good word. It's a real word. 
It's one in the Scriptures. Listen to Job 17. Turn your Bibles, Job 17, 1 through 3. I'm going to read this to you from the New American Standard. Listen to what it says. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Surely mockers are with me. That's his good buddies. And my eyes gaze on their provocation, their hostility. Lay down now a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will be my guarantor? What's that mean? Job's saying, I not only need a mediator and an intercessor, but I need a guarantor. What is that? It's someone who will guarantee your debt will be paid when you cannot pay it yourself. Can I hear an amen on that? Wouldn't you like to have one of them? For your car, for your home. What about your sin debt? What about your sin debt? Who's going to pay that when you can't pay it? The wages of sin is death. I can't pay it. I can't pay it. Job knew his friends were failures as mediators, intercessors, and guarantors. He's afraid that he's about to die and no one will stand up for him and say, look, this guy's sin debt has been paid. He is blameless. Even though he's suffering and even though it looks like he's going to die in his shame, this man's sin debt is paid and I guarantee it to be paid. I will pay it. In Job's suffering, his friends were accusers, saying he was still paying for his sins. you got to understand. Did you see the first thing that Zach said when he got this? The first thing he said was, am I paying for my sins? And the first thought that we think of when we're living for God is, I must not be paying for what I did now. It must be when I was a teen. It must be when I was a kid. Because all of us have that kind of past, almost all of us. And when that kind of passed, I'm telling you, you could be 60 and suffer, and you're going to think, is God still punishing me for that? And you need someone to stand up and say, that debt has been paid in full. The guarantee, the guarantor that we need in our despair had three characteristics that you see in this passage. First of all, a guarantor who will say our debt is paid before you die. Listen, don't wait. You need some your sin debt to be paid before you die. You, people can't pray you into heaven after you're dead. People can't do penance for you to get you out of purgatory. When we die after this is the judgment, our destiny is sealed. And if you don't have someone to pay that sin debt right now before you die, you need it before you die. Number two, a guarantor who will say our debt is paid before others who will claim you must still pay for your sin. See, Job's friends are still around. Did you know that? Job's friends are still around. There's still people in your life who would love to tell you, you've got to suffer a little more. <coughs> you know what? I just, I just don't think you've suffered enough, and I think God has called me to help you suffer a little more. And if you've ever tried to intercede with those people, if you've ever tried to convince those people that God's paid my debt, God is my judge, Christ is my guarantor, He's paid my debt, they won't hear of it. And now you're trapped. But you're not trapped because you have a guarantor who is Jesus Christ. God who says His debt is paid. And really it doesn't matter what you think He must suffer because He answers to me. 
Number three, a guarantor who will say our debt is paid before God himself. Because see, it's ultimately what God says. Listen, we owe God a debt for sin we cannot pay. And God, we need God to pay a debt he does not owe. We need a guarantor with God. Job needed this. Are you seeing a pattern here? Everything that Job needs, only God can provide, and yet God's the one that is requiring it. Are you seeing that pattern? Job knows what he needs. He just doesn't know who's going to do it or how it's going to happen. But we live on this side of Calvary and we know who it is that is our guarantor, our intercessor, our mediator. It is Jesus, the God-man, who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves and who answers to God and yet He is God. Isn't that beautiful? And so in Job 19.30, yesterday or Friday was Good Friday, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished to tell us die, meaning paid in full. He is our guarantor. And whenever we wonder if my sin debt has been paid, He is there at the right hand of the Father with the nail scars in His wrist, with the nail scars in His ankles, with the pierced side. And He says, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. Well, Job's hope is not done rising. We have one final hope. Hope rises when, number four, you have a Redeemer who will raise you from the dead. You have a Redeemer who will raise you from the dead. Turn to Job 19 now. It it, it doesn't get any better than this. Job 19, 25 through 27. Job's hope has risen to the ultimate point to where he's no longer asking questions. He's no longer making suggestions. Now he's expressing convictions. Look at Job 19, 25 through 27. I know. Underline that. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end... He will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, look, I know I'm going to die and I know I'm going to go to, to pieces. I'm going to rot in the earth. And yet in my flesh, I will see God. My flesh is going to be destroyed. And yet my flesh, I'm going to see God. How can that be? Job didn't know how that could be. He took that by faith in God. We know how that can be now. I myself will see him with my own eyes. So he's not a spirit. He's a physical. He's been raised. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Do you know and do you yearn this Easter? Do you know that your Redeemer lives? And do you long for the day when you and he will stand together? And He will be your intercessor. He will be your mediator. He will be your guarantor. And He will be your redeemer. Now in this passage, there's seven characteristics of this redeemer. And I can't develop those for you. You look at them. You think about them. Many of you know what these are. A redeemer who actually delivers. The word is the kinsman redeemer. The idea here is I need a blood kin. I need a blood relative who will stand up for me. And if I, if I am killed, someone will avenge me. Listen, that's not old stuff. This family here in Kansas City longs for a kinsman redeemer to avenge their death. Because ultimately, a human court won't take care of it. 
Even a death sentence on this earth will not ease that pain. They need a kinsman redeemer to avenge the blood that has been shed. I need a redeemer who is living, one that's alive. Buddha's not alive. Mohammed's not alive. Moses is not alive. One day Billy Graham's going to die. Popes come and go. We need a redeemer who actually is alive. And Jesus is the only one who claims that. A redeemer who is ruling. It says he's going to stand on the earth. That doesn't mean just like da-da-da, da-da-da. It means ruling, reigning. And you know what this word earth literally means? Listen, listen. It means dust, literally. You see, Job has a redeemer that will not only stand on the earth, but stand on the ash heap with him. Folks, Jesus died on the ash heap of the cross. He stood in the ash heap of despair. He hung there, suspended between heaven and earth as our mediator. He intercedes for us. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He is our guarantee. It is finished, paid in full. And He is our Redeemer who rose and lives and is coming again. Man, is that is that not exciting? It is. Thank you. A Redeemer who is life-giving and death-reversing. One that would raise Job from the dead. A Redeemer who is loving. I, my Redeemer. A Redeemer who is worth longing for, looking for, and living for. Oh, how our hearts should long for this day when we will stand in glorified, resurrected bodies. No more cancer. No more killing. No more pain. No more separated and irreconcilable differences and divorces. Everything right because God is with us, a Redeemer who is God Himself. Well, hope rises from the ashes when we realize this Redeemer really exists. So I want to end with this. Hope rises this morning from your ash heap of despair when you have Jesus. He was blameless, but He was sinless. He wasn't just the servant of God. He was the son of God. He didn't just suffer. He was a sacrifice for your sin and for my sin and for every sinner who will come to him in faith. He will wipe away and stand and mediate and guarantee that everything's been paid in full. And then he rose from the dead to be all that God requires, all that we need. Listen, Job knew he needed God to be God before God and stand before God, he didn't know it was going to be Jesus. We know that. What have you done with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? And are you now an intercessor? Are you now a mediator? Are you now going to stand? Because at the end of this book, Job intercedes. Job mediates for his sinful friends. God says, you stand in the gap. Who are you standing in the gap for? So in our despair, Jesus is our mediator who reconciles us to God, our intercessor who pleads our case before God, our guarantor who pays our debt to God, and our redeemer who gives us new life and will raise us up from the dead for God. And if I had time, and we'll see this in the weeks to come, come back if you're a guest this morning. We're going to see that Jesus is our Savior, our victor, and our ruler who calls us to himself 
and makes all things work together for God's glory and our good by the end of this book. And He can do that for you this morning. Let's pray. Father, I'm overwhelmed at the goodness of who You are. That You would reveal this so many thousands of years ago to a man sitting in a garbage dump. A man who cried out, Oh, I wish my cry could be written in a book and forever preserved. And little did Job know that his story would be in the Bible and we'd be teaching it this morning. But there's one greater than Job here today, and it's Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that if any of us do not know where we stand with you, that we'll make that right. We will receive your mercy because you are just and the justifier of those who through faith cry out to you. It's a free gift, and it's made possible through Jesus, who lived sinlessly, died sacrificially, and rose triumphantly. And it's Him we worship in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.